Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in the series on Heaven and the New Earth. When I say New Earth, I feel like it sounds like something out of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Like Middle Earth, New Earth. Well, the New Earth is actually something incredibly exciting and something we can all look forward to it, Christ's second coming. Let's review first what we learned in our last podcast. We know that Satan seemed to have won a victory in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? Because before man's rebellion, heaven, God's holy dwelling place, was literally here on earth with man. God and man were in partnership together, taking care of God's perfect creation. We were created for work that was enjoyable and fulfilling and in partnership with God. But then, tempted by the evil one, man decided to determine for himself what's good and bad, and he made the decision to separate himself from the Creator. So, heaven and earth became separate because of our sinful nature. God, the Bible tells us, represents everything that is good and right and just, and so when sin entered man, we became the antithesis. We became corrupt and unjust. And so God's dwelling place, heaven, could no longer be with man because of our sinful nature. And as we discussed, if this was the end of the story, the Bible would have been a very sad, disappointing, and short story. But This is not the way the story ends. The point of the biblical narrative is to point us to Jesus and God's desire to reunite heaven and earth. The whole point of the Bible is to point us to a time when we will be reunited with God in perfect partnership with him here on earth. That's the new earth. Satan didn't win. We are resurrection people. God turns Satan's victory into defeat because Jesus rose from the dead and therefore death no longer had to be a source of fear or dread because Christ overcame death. And one day, here's the good news, one day we also will overcome death. The law can no longer condemn us. We have hope beyond the grave. We are resurrection people. Now, last week, we learned that when we die, our souls go to heaven, not our bodies. We also discussed that the Bible tells us that those of us who believe in Jesus Christ will rise again. We'll experience a resurrection instead of what the Bible calls a second death. And that's when we'll live with him here on earth 
in new resurrected spiritual bodies. We learned that heaven is not our final resting place, nor is it actually the focus of the Bible. The focus of the Bible is on how heaven and earth are going to one day be reunited again. And that's going to be more of what we're going to talk about in today's podcast. Now, many of us, when we think of heaven, we probably think of puffy white clouds, chubby, well-fed angels, people in long white gowns, amazing singing, lots of light, and the presence of God. We look up and we assume that heaven is somewhere out there above the clouds. Well, we get a little fuzzy when someone asks us where it is exactly. We just kind of point up. However, I'm part of the generation that saw the first lunar landing. Now, when the rocket exited our Earth's surface and entered into what we call outer space, the astronauts did not bump into a place called heaven. And when they traveled 238,900 miles and landed on the moon, they didn't come across an area populated by angels and roads covered in gold and precious stones. Do you ever think about this? I do. (laughs) So where exactly is heaven? Is it way, way out, outside of the Milky Way in a galaxy far, far away? Hmm. So in addition to me trying to find this answer in the Bible, I did what most of us now do. I Googled it. I wrote in, where is heaven? Okay, I got a lot of wackadoo answers, but I really enjoyed this answer from gotquestions.org. Here's what they said. Heaven is most certainly a real place. The Bible very definitely speaks of heaven's existence and access to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. But there are no verses that give us a geographical location. The short answer to this question is heaven is where God is. The place referred to in this question is called the third heaven or paradise, as in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And it's where the apostle Paul tells of a living man who was caught up in heaven and was unable to describe it. Other verses indicate heaven to be above the earth, like the Bible verses about the Tower of Babel. God says, let us go down. That's in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. Heaven is described as high above the earth, like in Psalm 103, and the place from which the Lord looks down, like in Psalm 14. Jesus is described as having ascended into heaven and descended from heaven, like in John chapter 3. Now in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Jesus is described as being taken up into heaven. And when God takes John to heaven in Revelation chapter 4, he says, come up here. Now, these passages have led to the conclusion that 
Heaven is beyond the Earth's airspace and beyond the stars. Okay, are you with me so far? The website goes on. However, since God is spirit, heaven cannot signify a place remote from us which he inhabits. Now, the Greek gods were thought of as spending most of their time far away from Earth in some sort of a celestial equivalent of the Bahamas. I like that. But the God of the Bible is not like this. He's always near us when we call on him, like in James chapter 4. And we're encouraged to draw near to him, like in Hebrews chapter 10. Granted, the heaven where the saints and the angels dwell has to be thought of as a sort of locality because saints and angels as God's creatures exist in space and time. But when the creator is said to be in heaven, the thought is that he exists on a different plane from us rather than in a different place. I like this idea. Based on what I've been studying about ancient biblical cosmology, the idea that where God lives is like a different dimension that we can't see is becoming a more accepted idea. Okay, they continue. That God in heaven is always near to his children on earth is something the Bible expresses throughout. The New Testament mentions heaven with considerable frequency, yet even with this frequency, detailed description of its location is missing. Perhaps God has intentionally covered its location in mystery, for it's more important for us to focus on the God of heaven than the description or location of his dwelling. It's more important to know the why and the who than the where, end quote. So, right now, in the world, in this present age, we live in a broken world. We know this. Back during the time of Adam and Eve, God's space and earthly space, they overlapped, which is just so amazing to think about. But then we've learned that when we sinned, the man and the woman were banned from the Garden of Eden, which is also called paradise. And therefore, they were no longer in the presence of God. Later in the biblical narrative, God through Abraham, chose the people of Israel to be his people. That's in the Old Testament. And we know that after rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, God told the people, he promised the people that he would be with them. And so first he was with them as a cloud during the day and then a pillar of fire at night, which is pretty cool. And then God instructs the Jewish people to build a temporary tent-like structure called a tabernacle, and then later to build a physical permanent structure called a temple. And that's where then God dwelled with his people. And both within the tabernacle and then later within the temple, there was this very special place called the Holy of Holies. And that represented the center of God's presence. God created this safe space so that he could be with the people, even though they were sinful. Now, 
you may have listened to some of my past podcasts where we talk about this. How can sinful people approach the throne of God? Well, God had a plan for this. And during the time of ancient Israel, it was through sacrifice. The blood of the animal would symbolically absorb man's sin so that then they could approach the holy presence of God. And it was the high priest who acts as a representative of the people who would approach this holy of holies, God's presence, once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But here's the problem. As the world was expanding, the temple was in Jerusalem, which was far from many of the people. So here's what's cool. The Bible tells us that God became man in the form of Jesus. And therefore, his dwelling, his holy of holies, was among us. John tries to explain this in the New Testament in chapter 1, verse 14 of the book of John. He says, The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, unquote. So when God came to earth in Jesus, still fully God and fully man, people could now once again, just like in the Garden of Eden, know God fully. Before, with the presence of the temple, knowledge of God, the relationship with God, was just for a few select people. It was for the Jews. But now through Jesus, God come to earth, everyone could know him. God's character, God's love. Do you understand this? Heaven in the form of Jesus, came to earth. Think back in the Old Testament, during the time of Moses. Now, God revealed himself through his laws, through the stone tablets. And yeah, that was dramatic and it was impactful, but nothing compared to God revealing himself in the flesh through Jesus. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap. Wherever Jesus went, he was creating kind of heaven spaces. He was bringing heaven to earth by his presence. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand, or another translation is, is near. Now, what did he mean by this? He meant that he was literally bringing heaven to earth. The kingdom of heaven was really close, guys, like it's right here. During the life of Jesus, Jesus took the form of a suffering servant, right? Teaching all who would listen to him, to love the Lord their God with all their heart and to love their neighbor as themselves. Okay, well, 
Here's what's mind-blowing, and I want you to meditate on this. During Jesus' life here on earth, he was not just representing the temple, the holy of holies, but he was also the temple sacrifice. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was God's presence, and he was also atoning for the sin of the world so they could approach him. Remember how Jesus taught his followers to pray. We call this the Lord's Prayer. Part of the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was encouraging his followers to pray for the time when heaven and earth would be reunited again. Thy kingdom come. God's kingdom will come to earth. And when that happens, all evil is destroyed and God will establish a new heaven and a new earth. Thy will, not my will. We're praying that God's perfect plan, not our plan, will be accomplished not only right now in the present age, but in the age to come. The point of the New Testament of the Bible is to spread the good news of salvation through Jesus and the fact that we get to enjoy life everlasting. It's interesting when you look at that word gospel. You know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We refer to them as the gospel. The English word for gospel is actually derived from the Anglo-Saxon word God spell, which means good story. During the time of Jesus, the Greek word for God spell or gospel was euangelion. It referred, and this is so interesting, to good news that Caesar would bring to his people. Freedom, justice, peace, and even salvation. Because remember, the emperor was seen as the protector of the empire. So, then along comes Jesus, God in the flesh. And people like the apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, all of a sudden recognized the fact that, whoa, it's not Caesar who was Lord. It's Jesus. And what's cool is that by Paul using the word euangelion or gospel, his audience was able to make this connection that, okay, we're citizens of heaven, not citizens of Rome. In fact, Paul is super bold in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies 
so that they may be like his glorious body, end quote. You know, it's actually kind of wild to think how bold this statement was that was made by Paul and then others in the first century in this Roman-occupied world. But it's a super powerful message for us also. We must not be concerned about being accepted by this world. We must be bold with proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the evangelion. Jesus is Lord. We're citizens of heaven, not of this world. As we've been studying heaven and the new earth that will occur during Christ's second coming and reign on earth, we need to understand that the kingdom of God will not be complete until Christ returns. When he does, peace will be restored, evil will be overthrown, and God will dwell with us forever. But Christians cannot bring about the kingdom of God. It's not a city or a place that we can build. This will be done by God in God's perfect timing. However, what we as the church of believers can do is to spread the gospel, the good news, the evangelion, the news of the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life through belief in Jesus. We've been told that once this gospel has been spread to the ends of the earth, then thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is not here yet, but when we believe in Christ, we get to have a bit of heaven in our hearts. You know, I just love the Apostle Paul, and I like the way he talks about this in his second letter to the Corinthians, the people of Corinth. So I'm going to end with a wonderful translation from what's called The Message. And if you're not familiar with The Message, it's a contemporary Bible translation written by Eugene Peterson. It's, it's not a study Bible. He likes to refer to it as a reading Bible. So I'm going to read from the message, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, and chapter 6, 1 through 10. And this is Paul's message, sort of in a contemporary language. We know that when these bodies of ours are taken down like tents and folded away, they will be replaced by resurrection bodies, God-made, not handmade, and we'll never have to relocate our tents again. Sometimes we can hardly wait to move, and so we cry out in frustration. Compared to what's coming, living conditions around here seem like a stopover in an unfurnished shack, and we're tired of it. We've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrection bodies, the Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a 
little bit of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. That's why we live with such good cheer. You won't see us drooping our heads or dragging our feet. Cramp conditions here don't get us down. They only remind us of the spacious living conditions ahead. It's what we trust in but don't yet see that keeps us going. Do you suppose a few ruts in the road or rocks in the path are going to stop us? When the time comes, we'll be plenty ready to exchange exile for homecoming. But neither exile nor homecoming is the main thing. Cheerfully pleasing God is the main thing. And that's what we aim to do, regardless of our conditions. Sooner or later, we'll all have to face God, regardless of our conditions. We will appear before Christ and take what's coming to us as a result of our actions, either good or bad. That keeps us vigilant. You can be sure. It's no light thing to know that we'll all one day stand in that place of judgment. That's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to face God. God alone knows how well we do this. But I hope you realize how much and how deeply we care. We're not saying this to make ourselves look good to you. We just thought it would make you feel good, proud even, that we're on your side and not just to your face as so many people are. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted overly serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and the last word in everything we do. Companions, as we are in this work with you, beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life God has given us. God reminds us, I heard your call in the nick of time. The day you needed me, I was there to help. Well, now is the right time to listen, the day to be helped. Don't put it off. Don't frustrate God's work by showing up late, throwing a question mark over everything we're doing. Our work as God's servants gets validated, or not, in the details. People are watching us as we stay at our post, alertly, unswervingly, in hard times, tough times, bad times, when we're beaten up, jailed, mobbed, Working hard, working late, working without ink, with pure heart, clear head, steady hand, in gentleness, holiness, and honest love. When we're telling the truth and when God's showing his power. When we're doing our best setting things right. When we're praised and when we're blamed. Slandered and honored. True to our word, though distrusted ignored by the world, but recognized by God. Terrifically alive, though rumored to be dead. Beaten within an inch of our lives, but refusing to die. Immersed in tears, yet always filled with deep joy. Living on handouts, yet enriching many. Having nothing, having it all. End quote. As Paul said in this above letter to the Corinthians, let's 
get motivated. Let's not squander a moment. Let's spread the love and the good news of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come. Have a blessed day.